Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health and body spirituality and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Today's show is brought to you by Somatic Psychotherapy Today, www.somaticpsychotherapytoday.com. Today's guest is Deirdre Fay, who has integrated attachment theory and yoga with trauma treatment as part of her professional work. She is the author of Becoming Safely Embodied, a guide to organize your mind, body, and heart to feel secure in the world, and attachment-based yoga and meditation for trauma recovery, simple, safe, and effective practices for therapy. Hi, Deirdre. How are you? So great to be with you, Michael. Thank you. It's great to see you. I, I definitely appreciate your book. Definitely want people to check it out, Becoming Safely Embodied. And I'd love for you, if you're open to this, is to start. let's start this conversation with what in your past led you down this path of wanting to share with the world the importance and how to becoming safely embodied? Well, in a nutshell, I was living in a yoga ashram and this would have been in the 80s and 90s, doing a lot of yoga, a lot of meditation. I'd been practicing meditation since, um, oh gosh, the late 1970s. That feels like so long ago. And in that safe cocoon, my own personal trauma history came up and I wouldn't have known that I had a trauma history. I would, well, first of all, trauma wasn't really a well-known exploration uh, and inquiry. So, and the thing that was, I think, really propelled me into this is I was able to meditate and do yoga for hours at a time to suddenly when my trauma came up to, I was blown up. I didn't want to get out of bed. I couldn't meditate. And I was like, why, why could I do that before? And now I can't. And, and why, why if the, you know, before I, I actually loved, I thought being in my body, whose body was I in? And why could I no longer have that same experience? I felt, um, I'm not sure what I felt lost. I felt um, abandoned. I felt unclear of why God, whatever that word is, why I couldn't make contact anymore mm. in the same way. And so that really started my quest. And then I began to look around at that point. I was teaching a lot at the yoga ashram and we had a lot of guests that came, you know, thousands of guests a year. And, and there were a lot of residents, you know, we had 365 residents living there. And I realized there's a common theme. People have a difficulty with being in their body. And that has a lot to do with past historical stuff. So that really started me on my path. And then I left, I went to social work school, and I did my research on uh, what happens to long term meditators when their own trauma histories came up. It was really a validation study because I, yeah. what I heard is what people were saying. You know, we, people would go on retreats and something would happen and they'd be so discombobulated. And at that time in the meditation world, we were really, you know, it was, it was much more circumscribed mm -hmm. and you were, I'm not sure all the words around it, but you were supposed to do it a certain way. And what people started telling me is no, you know, even if they were residents at these meditation retreats, 
or centers that they would sneak away and they would read catalogs in the bathroom. They would um, do other things that just help them modulate their experience. And every single one of them said that they needed psychotherapy along the way in order to handle the intensity that was coming up. So meditation alone wasn't doing it. So it was in that process that I started exploring even further. And then I, um, was doing one of the internships I had was at a big teaching hospital in the Boston area. And somebody had been on a workshop that I had uh, led and wanted me to come into the dissociative unit uh, and teach meditation and yoga. And there was no literature. I think there were two articles that I could find on it when I was doing my research on it. And so I went and I started teaching yoga and meditation to these uh, women that were in these inpatient uh, dissociative units and just trying to see what did I, had I learned through my process that I could share. Uh, and it was in that, in that, you know, doing all that, that Bessel van der Kolk heard about the work I was doing and invited me to join his team and wanted me to run a group. Uh, and so I started doing what I call, I, what became the becoming safely embodied skills group. And I started with 10 weeks and people wanted more. So did 16 weeks and then it was 24 weeks and then people wanted more. They, they wanted support and dealing with their inner world. And then Janina Fisher who was a friend and colleague and had an office down the hall. And she said, what are you doing? All my clients are getting better faster. So she came and she started leading the groups with me to learn. And at one point we had like three levels of groups, people who'd been in the groups for 10 years, you know, 24 weeks at a time, just uh, building connection and safety and the skills. And what I realized is that we, we don't have a way, I think we're much better at it now, there's a lot more trauma education, but we don't know really how to organize our inner world. And especially when we're blown up inside, it's like, how do we put the pieces back together? And the greatest dilemma is that we believe this felt experience is real and we get so identified with it. And that's exactly what, you know, all the ancient wisdom traditions teach us. So that's where this all came from. Let me ask you this, because you talked about your own experiences, you know, when your own traumas reemerged in your consciousness and in your body. Um, how come at getting out of bed is one thing you said, but could you talk about either for you or for some of the clients you've seen over time? Like, what are some of the dysregulation that you know that they report or you notice inside themselves? Mm. Besides behaviors, you know, like right. I get out of bed, I'm, you know, whatever. Right. Well, I think the, the biggest problem is being overwhelmed by emotion or felt experience. That's on one hand. And then there is the whole other group that shuts out experience. And it's when I studied with Dan Brown, you know, we wrote a book with a group of us called Attachment Disturbances in Adults. It was when I first started studying with him, I was like, oh my God, this is the missing piece because attachment theory talks about that dilemma. There's, we're anxiously attached or we're, um, we're 
uh, dismissive about life experience and relationships. And that was like, aha, that's what it is. So people tend to be so overwhelmed by what's going on inside. They can't make sense of it. And it feels like it's happening now. Do you have a moment and I can make actually make a little drawing? Sometimes this yeah, is certainly. Yeah. helpful to people. Is, so I, I talk about this in the book and in our courses about the um, parallel lives, which is we're in this moment. And right now we happen to be in 2022. And then there's the past. And we're going along and doing our thing and where life is good and we're rolling along and then something happens and that something happens blows up our past experience. And I I talk about these as time capsules of experience. Now, this is not how memory is encoded, but it just helps to think about it is that we put these little moments in. So let's say you had a good experience riding a bike when you were five or whatever, learning how to ride, or maybe you had a bad experience, but that is, you know, inside our, inside our being and felt experience. And let's say when you're riding your bike, something good happens. Then when you have a memory association, it's like, ah, that feels good. You're maybe you're riding a bike now, but let's say you're riding, you had a bad experience and you're riding along and, somebody yells at you or there's a, somebody stops you and you fall off your bike and you're, you're going to go down into this experience and it's going to come into this moment. Now it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's happening in the past. It's happening now. Mm -hmm. And that's so confusing to us. This, 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 um, conflation of the felt experiences this boundary between the present moment and the past gets blurred we call it the dissociative barrier and there's a lot of research both now in dissociation but also in uh, people who hear voices and more of the schizophrenia field where, where we see like how permeable that boundary can be so that's where I think the root of of it all is and either we get overwhelmed and we're flooded by that all the time or we shut it down we use all our energy to keep that out to so that we can just live so we can do something one thing or another now would you say in terms of the uh, overwhelm that some of the spiritual practices that you were were and still are involved in are catalysts to allow people to start uh, opening the floodgates and allow this stuff to come up. And because the spiritual practices have not been integrated with Western psychological systems, it's like, oh, what do we do with this? You can't just observe it. I mean, you could, obviously you could just observe it, but it would sound like it could be quite overwhelming for many people when it starts coming back into their conscious mind through the physical body. It's true. I think one of the, the hardest things, and we know this both from anyone who's in a practicing meditation or any of the traditions and also psychological traditions is how do we be here and there at the same time how do we disidentify with the pain without shoving the pain away how do we be compassionate you know like Kristen Neff and Chris Germer and Paul Gilbert did doing great work around compassion but it's all about how do we incorporate ourselves and that's uh, that's the complication. And when this felt experience, and we know this, 
I know this even to this day when my felt experience overwhelms me, it takes practice. It takes skill for me to just moment by break it down. That's why I, I, you know, I teach what I need to learn, you know, as I slow down life experience and just say, here I am, I'm walking along, I'm doing this. I'm, uh, you know, the room is here. Everything externally is safe because luckily I live in an externally safe world. Now it gets complicated if the external world isn't safe. So, so for this conversation, let's just hold that in abeyance. If you're a, a violent external life situation, it's, it's a lot more complicated. No, I, I love for you to talk about, so, you know, you work with individual, actually, before you even go there, it was interesting. You talked about the first introduction when you're in, I guess, Massachusetts was with dissociative, you know, people with dissociative disorders. And I'm curious because I, I have seen some literature that meditation might not be the best approach. Certain certain, practice, certain practices, the meditation for dissociative disorders because it just can exacerbate them. And I'm curious, like you've done that. I mean, you've worked with those folks with that condition. And I'm curious on your take on that. Oh well, it's a really good question. I think we've gotten a lot better at that, you know, over the years as people have studied it, and. It's helpful to think about meditation, not just in a, uh, a single, single frame, that if we look at it, there's concentration practices, and then there's the Vipassana allowing things to come up and pass through. But when somebody has a disorganized inner world, they need to learn concentration practices. And I can remember walking home from work and just being so triggered and I just practiced uh, concentration, basically saying, I'm triggered, I'm triggered. It's all that's happening right now is I'm triggered. I'm tri and I think I walked an hour home and that's all I said to, to help my mind focus and direct itself. And concentration practices are really important in that, in that they say, okay, you wanna go here, let me focus on this and just bring my attention there instead of getting caught up in everything else that's going on. Now, what happens is if uh, I need to be able to concentrate and focus and be able to move toward that. And then if, if it gets too intense, I might get, um, I might get into a bliss state and that can be overwhelming and scary because then the, I feel like the boundaries are, are gone in some way or another. And so we need to have, you know, use it judiciously. How do I stay focused in enough way, but then also name what's going on. And we know that, you know, those simple skills, being able to name what's happening, make a huge difference. And that being right there. And that's, that's a mindfulness technique is essentially. So we need to have yeah. both. I love that in your book, you, you make distinctions between those two types of meditative practices. And you also actually offer in a compassionate training too, as a meditative practice too. Right. The thing is so important because most people, because a lot of people conflate, oh, meditation is this, as opposed to, you know, there's multiple different practices in right. there and they have different effects, intentionally have different effects. So thank you for doing that. That's really important. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. Sorry, I just got blurry. I, I see that... Um... I'm just going to pause that. I, I yeah. start moving around and my, my camera can't keep up with me. 
Um, so my other my question I was going to ask before we did the dissociative thing was at, at the cultural level, you know, because I think your book is wonderful and it's really important that people learn to be safely embodied, the title of your book. But I find it kind of sad that in our culture, we actually need that to be mm. reminded of that importance. And I'm curious, you know, what are some of the cultural forces that you've seen over time with your clients that you've worked with that we, you know, broadly speaking, we should actually work on to help us so we don't need to be constantly reminded of the need to be safely embodied because these forces, you know, take us away from our body or make our body unsafe or whatever. What are you seeing kind of out there in the culture? It's such a great question. I think there's a couple things. One is that it's again, part of the attachment world is if we weren't part of a, a, a world early on between zero and three is where the research says after the, we are living in an embodied state at where what we call apprehending the world, experiencing the world rather than thinking about the world. And that as we develop, we develop a cognitive capacity, our brain develops and we start thinking about world. And that's where we get all more of the defenses in place. And so psychologically, that's the part of the issue at, uh, on an attachment developmental level, that's part of the issue. And then culturally, uh, I recently, about a couple of years ago, moved from the, the U.S. to France, and I, I, it's amazing to me that the culture can have such a difference. The culture here doesn't have the push, push, produce, produce, uh, strive at all costs. It's much more, uh, I don't, it's not quite that it's relaxed. But the emphasis isn't on that. The emphasis actually is um, more on connection and relationship and uh, time off and enjoying life. And what I've seen then is it's actually easier. This isn't to say that people in France or people in Europe are more embodied. That's not the case at all. But I, I'm seeing the difference in the cultural forces. When I was in the US, how strong it was to strive and become and push um, and certainly I, when I took the six and a half years out and lived in a yoga ashram, that was a way to really decompress and be inside. But the, I would say that's one of the, the more complicating things is how much our society and our culture is drawn to not really wanting, well, we, we see the crisis of mental health now. We don't really want people to deal with their inner worlds because it's a burden and it's a barrier to productivity. So sad to see it that way, but I think that is the case. Very sad. You mentioned in terms of the French connection, it's kind of an important relationship piece. And in your book, you talk about belonging as one of the key factors in uh, you know, becoming safely embodied. Can you talk a little bit more about belonging and then connected to your attachment theory? Not your attachment sure. theory, but attachment sure, theory. Sure, I'd love to. Please. Um, well, what I began to understand when I really delved, took a deep dive into attachment theory, and I spent about 13 years with Dan Brown learning and going through all the research and understanding what was going on, is that there are some basic fundamental attachment needs that we all have. And if we don't have those needs met, 
we are, uh, we, we're, we're going to feel shame. We're going to feel like something's wrong with me. I started speaking about shame as an attachment wound that if I, if I, if I need you and you tell me I'm stupid or wrong, or I shouldn't be crying, or I'm a bo- I feel like I'm a bother. You don't even tell me I'm a bother. I feel like I'm a bother. I'm going to feel like something's wrong with me. But when I was looking, I was like, oh my God, how could there, like, it's so normal. Of course, of course, relationship wise, I need, I need you. Of course, how normal. But if I don't have that, that natural impulse to be connected, it's going to be cut off. And I'm going to feel like something's wrong with me that I need that. But that's ridiculous. But it's so part of our whole experience. So what I did some uh, study to with Paul Gilbert, who does a lot with compassion focused therapy. And, you know, we looked at well, some of these basic needs are being safe, to be physically safe, and emotional. And what I began to see is I need, yes, physical safety, but I need to know I'm emotionally, psychologically safe. And when I have that, I feel like I belong. I feel like I'm connected. And that is essential to our being, you know, and we see it now in the tribalism issues that are arising, not just, you know, in our, in the U.S., but around the world. We see it with the war in Ukraine, you know, the splitting of, of who's in and who's out. We have to attack and have war around that. So it's, it's just insane how, how fundamental that is to us. So that idea of belonging is critical. And when I, um, I think one of my very first workshop experiences was I taught in South Africa after the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. And after I, I did it on narrative therapy, actually, I remember now. And somebody came up to me afterwards and told me about how they, the people they worked with were out and not in the cities at all. And they told me about the tribes and how they, they hold it. If somebody did something wrong, what they do is they call the person into the whole group and the group surrounds them. And, you know, I'm thinking as I'm hearing the story, oh, geez, it's going to be bad news. They're going to like stone the person. And they said, no, but they all stand around and they say, you know, this is really who you are. You're a good person. You have a, you know, you're, I don't know what it is. And they feed back all the good stuff until that person remembers who they really are. And it was like, I have to say my circuits were blown, you know? So it's in that way of belonging and being connected that's so vital and important to us. That was a great example. Cause you know, I want to point out like, yes, we could work with newly new families, you know, so they can learn to work, to be with each other and with the baby in a different way. So you're not creating anxiety attachment styles or, or whatever, but, 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 okay. You have adults or work or teenagers, adults you're working with, and it's too late necessarily to, to undo that at that time. But what would you do with an adult who doesn't feel like they belong are operating from a shame place because of that postnatal experience that you already discussed? Like, how do you make them feel more embodied and mm. safe, emotionally mm. connected? Mm. It's such a, a multi-pronged and good question. And 
one of the ways that we're doing it in, in our world is through community and building safe communities where people can really start experiencing themselves and where people see the best in them and attune to them and instead of making them wrong or where they feel connected. So that's one way. Uh, that's the holding environment that's necessary, but it also is about really looking at some of those beliefs. Like uh, somebody in our community was talking, a therapist actually, she was talking about how she, she works with this self-critical shaming part of herself that says, nobody loves me, nobody wants me. And how she's having to slow it down moment by moment like she was in church recently and she just sat there and she was overcome with this feeling of shame. And she said, but right now, nobody's shaming me. And right now, nobody is pushing me away. And then she had to deliberately choose something different. So I started actually when I was seeing clients in my office and somebody, a master gardener had given me this geranium plant and every day I'd come in and this beautiful geranium, the leaves were turned toward me and I was like, oh, I love this. And then I'd turn it around and water it so it could get the light. And it was always, every day, as much as when I would turn it back toward me so I could admire the leaves, by the end of the day, it would turn back toward the light. And one day when I was talking to somebody, I thought, oh my God, that's what we all need. We need to learn how to turn toward goodness and kindness and compassion instead of staying with what's wrong you know it's interesting because now i'm 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 like okay which way do i want to go because i've heard in your book you talk about parts work and i just heard that you gave reference to that the lady who's really re-engaging a part of herself and you also talk about kind of connecting to your higher self or your wiser self so i'll leave it to you like where would you like to go with this conversation first would you like to talk about the parts work or connecting to a a wiser, higher version of oneself? Well, I think I'm influenced by the work, uh, my years of Sufi training. I trained Mm. with the Sufis and, uh, you know, they talk about remembering that really our journey is about remembering, remembering who we really are. And in the internal family systems model, we talk about self and separating the parts so that we can be in self. But what we found is that so many people have it, it's not that simple. So what happens often in therapy is that we tend to focus on all the parts and we don't spend the time cultivating that, that, that memory system of who we really are because it's so ephemeral and can be elusive. But if we start focusing on that and really build that place, Uh, I think it helps people and then be able to hold their experience. So we talk a lot about what in attachment theory, one of the fundamental ideas I got from John Bowlby and James Robertson, Bowlby is one of the, well, he was a grandfather of attachment theory. They they did a research study where they worked with kids in hospitals and they, they saw the separation distress that kids have. And the first phase is, active protest and then it goes into sort of despair and then it goes into detachment well what i began to do is think of all of our upsets as protest i'm 
I'm upset about something. And it, it really hit me one day. I thought, why are we so upset about life being this way? Why, why do I say it's not fair? It shouldn't be like this. It's wrong. It's like something inside of me knows it should be different. Mm. If I'm upset and I'm saying you shouldn't be mean to me, what in me knows that you should be nice to me? Something really powerful is. And Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras talks about the opposite. And so we know it in terms of yoga postures. If I bend down and touch my feet, when I stand up, I'm going to stretch and I'm going to move. I'm going to do an opposite of it. But it's true psychologically as well. If I'm angry and upset, what is the opposite? And how do I develop that, that, that nourishment so that I can be with this? And I really believe that this protest that we're having is our inner guidance system saying, go here. Don't go to this anger all the time. There's something calling you, but it's so ephemeral and nascent that we, we don't know how to name it and, and work with people. What we'll do is we'll say, so what is it you want? And most people say, I don't know. I don't know. And so we look at, well, you're protesting. So there's an unmet need in there. So let's look at what are you needing? And people, we have some, very, you know, things that we come up with and we see and then say, okay, so you need that. How do we actually begin to make this so granular and easy that you could take it in and have it and replenish yourself so that it's easier to move through life? I love that because what I'm thinking, going back to my question on the culture is like, you know, or if you're, if this is the kind of the triggered, angry state over here. Like our culture supports this or gives you options to get out, but not to your essential nature. Right. Not back into yourself. Part, right? Yeah. It's more like, oh, there's a medication, a drug, it's something to distract you. You know, so it's like moving you over here, but not inside to your essential quality nature mm-hmm. or however you want, whatever religious tradition you might use to define the inner state. So I, I love that the way you described it and the opposites. That's mm-hmm. really powerful. It's been powerful for, certainly for me, but also for the people I work with. Yeah. So how might you help a client discover or rediscover, or as you said, remember their essential qualities or essential nature? What practices do you recommend to people? Well, there's something that happens and it's kind of, I'm not sure what the right word is. When we are in our caught in our protest, but we start naming what we need, there's like a, it's like something lands inside. We, we line up and with, uh, so if I can say, oh, well, actually I saw Bowlby do this when he was talking to a client at one point and the, the client was upset and really lost in an experience about her mother. And Bowlby said to her, your mother hated you. And the client went like, yes, it was like being, you know, that's true. So landing there and and then acknowledging, what do you need? You need to be loved. How normal, how normal. The system quiets, the attachment system quiets because you get what you need. Then you can look at, well, how do you want to be loved what would that look like how would you want that to feel inside and how do you train your body 
mind and heart to actually have that experience instead of the old familiar one? Well, that's a good question because one of the things you talk about in your book is distinctions or differentiating thoughts and feelings. And I'm curious for you because, you know, someone might get it cognitively or intellectually like, oh, yeah, I know my needs need to be met. They weren't met. This is why this protest occurs. But that's different than like really getting at the heart inside the body, inside the emotions, not just cognitively. Can you speak a little bit about that? It's, it's, you know, it's a lifetime work. And I think that's why I like the Sufi work, too. It's like that's the that's the job. That's what we're here for, you know, is. How do we remember ourselves so that we can actually be ready to let go of this life that when it's time to let go? But let's say the simple thing, because we all want to love and be loved. It's just fundamental to all of us. Well, we can have that as a concept, but really our heart says, I want to be loved in this way, not that way. And each of us is going to have a unique way that we want to be loved. But until we know that, we can't, um, the old memory systems come into play and we keep reactivating the old neural networks. But if I, so what would love look like? You know, I worked with a dissociative client years ago who was, uh, she really, because she grew up in a horrible, she was African-American, she grew up in a horrible environment. And her entire family, I could have diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. And she said, all men, basically, she believed in men, all men were perpetrators. And I said, come on, okay, so let's work with that. And so over time, and of course it took time. It's like, so let's look at this man and that. When you see that magazine, what happens in you? Is that man a perpetrator when he's looking at that child? And then Barack Obama came in and she loved Barack Obama. And I said, so with Brock, with his kids, is he a perpetrator? You know, so challenging those old belief systems, that defensive structure, because really that's what it is. I'm gonna keep you out because I'm afraid. So let's challenge that defense, but also build up inside. Like, what's it like when Obama looks at his daughters? What happens inside you? There's a softening. Okay, just hang on, don't make a big deal out or just soften, let the softening happen and see that out there. And you link the two together. And so you're linking together something instead of the old memory system. And over time, she really was able to change that until she could have, she never really had what you and I might think of as intimate relationships, but she had much more um, supportive and encouraging relationships with men over time. Good. And I noticed like you, you talk about keeping someone away you, physically, you give this, showed us like, what that's like, and then kind of op- getting re-embodied and open the heart. And I'm curious, like when you work with clients, how, how do you not just conceptually, like let's walk through how you do these things, but, like how do you help them actually feel how they do their body right. in their relationships with themselves and other people? Well, I can think again to the attachment research and um, I call it the embodied attachment cycle is, so if you think about it, an infant lays on the ground and they have no muscle structure and they're just completely relaxed into the world. But then as they grow and develop, they, they see something out there and they might reach for it, but they can't get there. And so 
together, they have to literally push against something to go toward. And then when they grab, we see this with, you know, certainly with infants as they see their toes out there and they reach for their toes and they grab their toes and they reach, grab and pull it toward them. And we, so you can see this cycle with, with people, with kids, with human beings. We're just gonna, I go fuzzy all over, um, is that somebody's moving through and they're talking about something. And if we pause and slow them down, not rush through, just take it slow. We're gonna see some of those cycles, like that reach. Why don't you, you, you know, it's a reaching. Okay, so what's that like inside of you? Can you, what, what, maybe a longing comes up and longing is terrifying for people, but it's actually rocket fuel. If I can let my body hold a little bit more of that longing to make contact, maybe it is, you know, so it's small little things like that, that help connecting up the, both the attachment cycle and the somatic cycle. It's amazing to think I'm thinking about longing and bhakti yoga as an example, right. that there are so many spiritual paths and practices that just reflect, which to make sense, obviously, to explore these things, reflect our natural way we show up in the world as human beings and the challenges that we face and how we can use those challenges for our growth and development. So that's very cool, using kind of longing, how it shows up somatically and psychologically and spiritually, you know, to help people connect that way. That's really cool. I like that. It's a necessary um, rocket fuel to go from yeah. our human to talk about emergent human to go from here to where we want to go. Yeah, exactly. So you're obviously very well read and uh, I like to explore lots of different you know, subject matters and spiritual practices and psychological systems. And obviously you did a great job in your book, putting all of these things together. Thank you. Uh, what would you say your cutting edge thing? is at this moment? What are you exploring personally that might show up professionally down the road or both vice versa? Right. Well, I really come to believe that life and our traumas are a modern day bodhisattva training. You know, some of my Buddhist practices have been about training myself to take on life, not as a, a problem, but as a way to grow and develop and flourish. And I really believe trauma is, and I, I'm really committed to helping all of us see that we don't have to stay stuck in this traumatic imprint, but we actually, again, it's that nourishing opposite. What is it that we're moving to? And that we need each other to be bodhisattvas. We need people to actually be willing to take our suffering and turn it into compassion. I love that. Nice. And obviously seeing the world around us, we can use more of that, especially now. So thank you for that. Um, how can people learn more about your work? Your, I know you offer, you offer classes, obviously your book and other such things. Um, my website is dfay.com. Uh, we have a, a free safe guide on healing trauma. You it's uh, dfay.com forward slash safe guide, all one word, S-A-F-E-G-U-I-D-E. -E. Um, we do, a, we have a coaching group. We have the Safely Embodied Learning Community, another, you know, group that meets with me twice a month for coaching. And, uh, but then we have a, another group, a more intensive coaching group that happens. 
And then we um, are having more on, you know, other courses that go along in and through there. Right now I'm trying to slow down because I'm trying to write one more book. Oh, nice. Uh, and so we'll see how that goes and if that gets out there, but. Very cool. Well, I'll make sure to include all those links in the show notes. Oh, thank uh, you Deirdre, so much, this, Michael. Oh, you're quite welcome. Deirdre, this has been great. I've enjoyed our conversation. And, Love it uh, myself. Yeah, I definitely encourage folks to check out your book and your online classes and, and such. So thank you for your time. Pleasure's all mine. <laughs>